Welcome back to the final episode of this special season of Give Me Some Truth. In this episode, Chip, Aaron, Robert, and I go through the final bit of Yoko's audio diary and discuss our overall impressions. If you're still with us, I commend you. I know that the diary's not always easy listening, but I personally find it fascinating and hope you do too. I also hope that by the end of this, the recording's historical significance cannot be in doubt. So let's finish it off, shall we? When the recording starts again, Paul is switched from organ to piano, and George is soloing over his descending minor chords, while Yoko comments on John's demeanor. But, and I'm watching you from the side, but I think it's amazing. You look like a real nervous wreck. You're a very nervous person, I think. You looked that way, Sunny, I remembered, you looked that way when I first came to EMI to pick up some scores, I mean, a manuscript from you. You looked like somebody who's terribly nervous and uh, difficult and feel like a difficult artist or something like that. If I had seen you that way, probably I'd be scared. If I didn't know you and all that, I'd just meet you that way. Yoko refers here to the first time she attended a Beatles session at EMI and reveals that the purpose was to collect the lyric manuscripts he gave her for John Cage's Notations book project. Cage only published the colorfully illustrated, handwritten lyrics for The Word in 1969, but he also had Eleanor Rigby, Andrew Bird can sing, I'm Only Sleeping, Good Day Sunshine, For No One, and Yellow Submarine. The first known session Yoko attended was not until the 25th of September, 1967. Yeah, the Fool on the Hill session in September. But because all these lyrics are from the Revolver era, it's possible that Yoko's referring to an earlier session in late 66 or early 67. John had made reference and Lennon remembers to her being at the Hey Bulldog session. I don't know that we have any evidence that she was there, but he described that as her first and that she was criticizing the rhythm. But we know for a fact, because it happens to be documented in photos, that she was there for Fool on the Hill. And it so happened that she slipped into EMI the same day some Japanese journalists came to interview them formally. Well, John was horrible when it came to timelines and exact dates. He was not the source that you wanted to use for anything. He could have pointed you in the right direction, but, uh, uh, you know, you need to go with a different source when you were trying to tie down a date. Which makes me wonder how it was he threw Hey Bulldog out as the first studio session for Yoko. Because that would have been a pretty singular time. They're getting ready to go to India. And as we know, he had, up until the last minute, thought about bringing her along to Rishikesh. That's how important she is in his life at that point, although not apparently to the level that she would become upon his return. In, in reference to the Hey Bulldog session, I, I never thought to watch through all the video that's out there now in circulation uh, you know, for the Lady Madonna promo, how they how they filmed that, to see if Yoko's coat is on the floor, if you see her feet somewhere, or is there any evidence of her being there at the session? Because if they're filming with two cameras, 
she's going to get picked up somehow. She's going to be in a in a cutaway. So uh, I, I, next time I see that, mm-hmm. I, one went, might be tempted to ask Tony Bramwell, but on the other hand, you know he, he's got a history of his uh, perceptions of Yoko. So I would have thought she would have made a strong impression on him, but I'm not certain he's a credible witness at this point. I I have looked for her in in what is now edited as the Hey Bulldog video. Okay. And I ha- I haven't been able to find any any evidence of her and all the photographs from that session too. And you guys might see the Adam Bound videos where he collates and puts together yeah. absolutely all the extant footage of things. Yeah. Uh, but most of the footage is in the studio and not in the control room. And it, had she just been sitting in the control room, she would may not have been on the on the tape. So. Lots of ifs and buts. Right. Since this discussion with Chip and Robert, I also watched the nearly 20 minutes worth of video from the Hey Bulldog sessions shot by Tony Bramwell that Adam Bound Productions has on his YouTube. There's no sign of Yoko, but Hunter Davies, Neil Aspidal, Mal Evans, and Dennis O'Dell were all there in the studio at various points. Anyway, the session was on the 11th of February, 1968, more than four months after the Fool on the Hill session. Yoko resumes her observations about John, and it seems Franco Zeffirelli is still here, talking to him. I wonder what Zeffirelli is thinking about. You really look like a very tense, nervous person. Why do you look so different? Like as if you want to scare the guy. It's amazing. Anybody who has some project in their mind to approach you with or something would really be scared without them. But it's kind of nice. It's very masculine. Or something. I don't know how you have that shift of character. A very sharp, strong eyes, and and sometimes very soft and beautiful eyes. Sometimes I don't know if um, I'm following you too much. Sometimes I don't know if I'm looking at you too much. And so I hesitate to, to go near you. Right now you're in the other room and I'm just sort of embarrassed. I don't know if I should be coming or not. But you're in my mind all the time. So I guess that's what it is. Next, before the session winds down, Paul suggests a rhythmic arrangement idea inspired by the 1922 song I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise. Composed by George Gershwin with lyrics by Ira Gershwin and Buddy De Silva, I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise was originally written for the Broadway review George White's Scandals and was a favorite of Paul's father, Jim. In Tune In, Mark Lewison writes that Jim McCartney performed the song in his own band 
and tried on several occasions to convince the young Beatles to add it to their repertoire, which George would recall with amusement. By 1968, there were many famous versions of the song recorded by the likes of Sarah Vaughan, Frankie Vaughan, Pat Boone, Joel Grey, and by Georges Goutoret in the 1951 film An American in Paris. But none of them have the rhythmic build that Paul sings here. George Martin would go on to produce an album, The Glory of Gershwin, in the 90s, including a version of the song sung by Izzy van Randwyk. I'll build a stairway to paradise With a new step every day I'm gonna get there at any price Stand aside, I'm on my way I've got the blues and I'll... You look so intense Maybe you're angry or something with me I don't know so I'm afraid to go near you now. But it's nice to see you that way too. That's what we need now. Either another bit of this. The recording cuts. Was it was it Love of the Loved or uh, uh, it was one of the, like Dreamers do one of those songs that George thought was inspired by that. Yeah, like Dreamers do. Yeah, uh huh. George Martin looks much better now to me. George Martin looks much better. Exactly. Uh, much better now. To now that I found out that he's from a working working class. The recording cuts again. The uh, observation she has on George Martin, having found out he's from the lower class and not this, you know, member of the royal family that she perceives that she him is. To be. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I noted that too because that has echoes of Alan Klein further down the line. That was one of the justifications given for choosing Alan Klein. Oh, well, he's working class. Well, and John's whole persona of himself as the working class hero. That grew up in the nice suburbs of Liverpool. A house with a name. Next, Yoko comments on John's golden eyes. Yoko then returns to her feelings of insecurity and incorrectly states the date as Tuesday the 6th of June instead of Tuesday the 4th of June. A loud siren-like noise played back during this segment is the guitar loop made earlier in the session and used later on Revolution 9. (laughs) 
Recording stops for the second to last time. What was striking again and again throughout this conversation, the, the monologue rather, is her fear of John taking Cynthia back or Cynthia coming back and her being pushed out again. But then she makes the observation about was he genuinely in love with her or was he of weak character when he marries her? She hasn't made up her mind on that. She's sort of musing aloud about that. Who was this guy in 62? And that could be something, I guess, that might have come from the Eastern upbringing as opposed to the Western, viewing somebody else as a, as a weak character. Uh, she wants to be better than the ex. You know, just a... Who doesn't? I don't know. You know there's much more to, right, yeah. more to <laughs> add than that. Right. Well, but either of those, if you're entering into a new... Re- into a new relationship are not necessarily ideal for you in that, okay, he really loved her, which means I'm, 
on some level competing with his ex, or he's incredibly weak, which most people would not want to have a relationship with an incredibly weak partner. So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. And then she finishes with, finishes it with, I don't, I don't want to think about it. And it seems like the I don't want to think about it is if he was actually in love with Cynthia. So it seems like that would be the greater threat to her than her partner being incredibly mm. weak. Right. Mm-hmm. And she said, I've never been with anyone for that long, so I wouldn't know. In this last segment, John returned from the hall. George Martin and engineer Peter Bowne work on a rough mix of Revolution Take 20. It's likely that the other Beatles had already gone home. It's fun to hear John and George Martin relaxed and talking to each other in joke voices. Okay, let's do it. Voices on. Which one? Well, the, the new voices. You want that phone as well? Well, uh, for the final one, do it. You don't have to do it now, though. You can do it now if you want it. Yeah. Well, it just happens all the way through the flange, right, you whenever they're in, just straight flange. Two and three as well as two. Three as well as two. John made a beautiful uh, loop, yeah. and he's throwing that in to revolution. Can you sing slightly less on three? It's very intense, and one, two. Okay, let's go, man. Let's go. So we just leave them on then. Plan. Leave them on, yeah. And just to miss about a bit when it's guitar. Right. Then, you see. So I press the old recording. Don't flange these voices always, do Yes. The new, just those ones that goes, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy. Right, they come in towards the end anyway. Yeah, so yeah. Wait a minute. But what else is on it? There's nothing else on that track. No, but we have to set on that machine what we want to flange, you see. Oh, we only want to flange. So it won't harm it, will it? Yeah. Oh, no, no. So what are you saying then? I see. Right. <coughs> Let's go, baby. Um. Like we did last summer. Right. Everything. Yeah. Okay, I'll Less of the new tracks. Okay, that's all. On the beginning. All right. More. Revolution. I Taking knickers yeah. off and let's go. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. So <laughs> Thank you. 
that is the end of Yoko's recording. The session wrapped with two rough mixes made. Unfortunately, Yoko's last comments are mostly drowned out by the music because they liked to mix loud. Yoko wonders if John might want to go home without her, but is too afraid to ask. We know from the lore, the Beatle lore, that uh, George Martin by this time was sort of sidelined. They were running their own show and not being terribly respectful to him. This is very early on in the sessions, and so he's still nominally in command. And um, he makes that, that little joke, uh, let's twist again like we did last summer, <laughs> that yeah. little reference, which you, I would never have expected out of a George Martin, but it's cool to hear it. Has the audio that you shared been subjected to the sort of AI breakdown deconstruction? Okay. So, so that no, will I, have to happen. It will have to happen, yeah. I, I kept kept wishing for that ability as I was listening to it because there's just there, those couple moments where it ducks out and you just can't make out what she's saying. Yeah. Or, or on the other hand, to be able to hear the conversation that the Beatles are having together or with George Martin in the background without her uh, would be very valuable as well. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, or just the music. The sound quality at the end of Yoko's recording is quite poor. To hear all the chaos and creation that had been done to Revolution 1 in the last three sessions... Here is Revolution 1, take 20, in its entirety, all 10 minutes and 44 seconds of it. This is Remix 1, as John heard and took away an acetate of, in the wee hours of the 5th of June, 1968. Feel free to skip through this to get to our final discussion, but it's an interesting listen. Revolution, take 20. Revolution, take 20. For people with minds that hate, all I 
It's gonna be 
And we know that he wanted this to be a single. Right? That's right. That's what I was just going to say. It was going to be Revolution 1 coupled with Revolution 9. And there is an acetate out there of it. I've, I've not seen it or heard it, but he refers to it uh, when he's talking about the trip that they took to Ireland to look at Dornish and ended up at the hotel in Mulraney and how he would play it for the people in the bar. There's a lot of songs where John brought it in slow and then they sped it up, right? You yeah. Know, please please me and help. Right, right, right. So this is sort of that, except they ended up keeping the slow version as well as the fast version. Yeah, and, and slow seemed to be his mode for something he deemed important. You know, it wasn't the, the Strawberry Fields, they, they did a slow one and a fast one or a fast one and a slow one, but the tempo was something he took issue with, and that's how they ended up with the, the great magic splice and all that between the two takes. It would have been cool if he'd gotten around to doing the slow help the way he envisioned it. And the closest we have is that piano doodling tape where he can't remember the chords to it, but uh, a fully realized version would have been amazing. When I was younger, so much younger than I'm singing it myself at the moment. John and Yoko always told us the idealized version of their relationship. From the moment they got together, they told us of a love so all-consuming that nothing else could be as important. In October 1968, John told Don Short of the Daily Mirror, I've never known love like this before, and it hit me so hard that I had to halt my marriage to sin. Their spin on their own history and relationship has become mythology and continues to be reiterated in every new officially released book. Another part of their narrative is that Yoko was John's savior, that she rebuilt his self-confidence and restored his agency within the Beatles. While I do not doubt that there is some truth to their version of this history, it's problematic because it whitewashes and simplifies the complexity of their relationship. It is also an exaggeration. What is so valuable about this 1968 recording is that it gives us another side of the history. It exposes the more challenging aspects of their early relationship that have been written out of the official narrative. Predominantly, the future of their relationship was not a given after only a month. Yoko is constantly worried that any day this honeymoon period might end and John could return to his wife. 
She even says that he is in a more powerful position within the relationship because of that. It is easy to forget, but they were only two humans in a fledgling relationship that went through all the same stages as any other couple. In interviews, Yoko can be vague or cryptic, and it's refreshing to hear her be vulnerable and candid on this recording. Although, we should keep in mind that she intended John to hear the recording. These are not completely her private, unfiltered thoughts, and may have been said for a specific effect or desired outcome. Still, it comes across as honest and is a rare glimpse behind the facade. The overall takeaways is, I, I think the, the biggest indicator that this was not meant for public consumption is you get some humility, which I don't think she ever tended to show publicly. You get a vast insight into her massive insecurities about all kinds of things. And uh, even her role in his life, because there's, this, there's a couple of references to her worrying that Cynthia is going to resurface in his life and that she's going to be shoved back out. So for that alone, it's a fascinating snapshot of it's new enough into the relationship that I think we as people who were once teenagers can relate to that sort of first rush of young love and how obsessive you are, and you're, you're noting everything about him. She's talking about his complexion, and he's sweating, and how sexy he is when his shirt is off, and um, analyzing his handwriting, and the bit about astrological signs and stuff like that. So it, it's fascinating to get her take of things, even though while their romance is relatively new, she'd been in his life at least since November 66. So it seems like a lot of her immediate perceptions of John and the dynamic around him are pretty new. I think most of my takeaways have been addressed in terms of uh, the, the rampant insecurities, jealousies, paranoia that she flat out states, not for public consumption, about the situation. And so given this little insight into her perspective on things, is very refreshing as contrasted with the Ballad of Johnny Yoko tellings we've been subjected to through the years. But as we were, talk we were talking about before, it is intended for John's ears. Mm -hmm. so Do you think there's a spin to it of wanting to tell, want to express it the way he wants to hear it? Why, why would she want him to see her as so insecure and fragile at this point? Well, he's also insecure and fragile. So it could be a bonding mechanism or it could be to draw out his protective instincts. And reassurance, reassurance from John towards Yoko. So it almost seems like she's saying she wants or needs to perceive John as being as insecure as she is. No tape has surfaced of him expressing his inner thoughts like that. But as we know from many, many other things, how deeply insecure he was about so many things and easily wounded. Um, I don't know how much of that he would have divulged to her at this point, but... That was one of my questions of how much of John's backstory did Yoko know at this point? And how much of her backstory did he know at this point? Right. I mean, presumably just only what she told him would he know. I don't know that he did any kind of due diligence, which was George's whole thing. It's like, you know, this is, this is what people are saying about her in New York. Um, and at what point did John take it more seriously into just one more fling? Was it, it's, see this is the thing, the overall thing I got when I was reading the script and listening to the tape is that this is a psychologist's 
wet dream. It's it just so loaded with things to draw from this. It's like, this is so rich. Um, and I wish we had access to one who knew Beatles that could just go over this line by line. But, um, you know, we, we can sit here and speculate about this stuff, but um, I just wonder at what point, when we know that he goes to India, he goes away disillusioned after the Maharishi is it for him post-LSD. This is it. I found the answer. And he rides the helicopter hoping that Maharishi will divulge to him the secret of life and all that stuff. Comes home, not happy at all about that. Um, goes on an acid bender. So he's back to that. And only then is when this person who's been in his orbit that he's been sort of toying with, should I take it to Rishikesh? You know, sending postcards back and forth. And so clearly a subject of intrigue only then do they have what they have at Kenwood and gets consummated officially. They make two virgins. At what point does she enter that boundary that he'd kept her separate from to that point? It wasn't just because he was more amenable at that point. Chip might know better than me the timeline of when he called the Apple meeting and declared himself Jesus. That was just before going full on with Yoko. That's correct. Not, yeah, okay. That same so, day. That's correct. So, again, bring in the shrink to interpret all this stuff because, boy. Okay, scratch all this, Obadiah. Just go get a shrink and <laughs> you'll have your show. You know, when you analyze your relationship to the level that John and Yoko appeared to, then you're going to start seeing coincidences as having significance that other people wouldn't read into them. Everything has meaning. Right. Which is very weighty for a relationship, both good and bad. I believe John and Yoko loved examining John and Yoko, both themselves as individuals and themselves as a couple. So she spends so much time analyzing John throughout the conversation. He's obviously, or not the conversation, I keep calling it a conversation. Monologue. Monologue, right. She spends so much time analyzing John, but John loved to analyze John. And it demonstrates how focused she is on him, to the exception of really virtually everything else we talked about, how she has a sentence or two about Kyoko being out of the country and she doesn't know exactly where Kyoko is, and let's move on to analyzing John some more. It's really fascinating how much analysis she's going through and how really that's something that also continues for the rest of their relationship. The analysis continues, the analysis never stops, their analysis of one another, their analysis of their relationship, and it leaves me with the impression that there are other tapes like this and we just don't have them. And it would be really fascinating to know what those tapes say. In addition to the insight we gain into Yoko and John, this recording captures the Beatles at work in the studio in real time. Like Peter Jackson's Get Back, this is another rare window to hear how they interact in the studio and how much time is spent seemingly unproductive for a group that was so incredibly prolific in only seven years as recording artists. I, I agree, but it, it's all experimentation, I think, that had to take place to get the end result. And, and when the chips were down, they, they, they did come together and produce something. When it got to the point where they were going to do the concert on the roof, John stepped up, got everybody together, and, you know, they, and they, they produced as, as poorly as, as all of the noodling and everything we heard from the weeks before it. 
I think the perception is that Paul generally knew what he wanted and how to get it right away, but that's belied by the million takes and remakes of Obladio Blada. Uh, we know George for While My Guitar Gently Weeps, originally wanted the backwards guitar part on it that he played around with and played around with before finally he threw in the towel and called in Clapton. So they've given this great luxury of being able to play around till they get just what they want, even if at the onset they're not quite sure exactly what they want, but the serendipitous stuff occurs along the way that, oh, I can use this, or this will be the basis of my music concrete piece that we will tack onto the end of the album, something like that. It, it's amazing what came from the fact that they were so successful they were able to do this stuff in a way that wouldn't have been possible years earlier before they had the clout and unlimited studio time to do this. Mid-1968 was a pivotal time in the Beatles' story as they regrouped after the fragmented end to their India trip and embarked on a mammoth album project that would take up most of the rest of the year. At the same time, they began to feel the full weight of responsibility they now owed to their Apple Corporation without Brian Epstein to guide and advise them. Although they had all worked on solo projects outside the Beatles by this point, it is from this point that the unity of the group became less cohesive and they differentiated themselves in both their professional and personal lives. I hope you've enjoyed this analysis. I would like to thank Chip Mattinger, Aaron Torkelson-Weber, and Robert Rodriguez for their deep listening thoughts and for taking the time to come together to discuss it. If you'd like to hear more, please rate, review, and subscribe to Give Me Some Truth wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at Gimme Some Truth Pod, or email me at Gimme Some Truth Pod at gmail.com. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me and is a labor of love. My goal is to find the evidence and sources like this one that help us get to the truth of the Beatles' story, how they created the most fantastic music, and how they lived their lives while creating it. Stay tuned for season four, stay well, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>